This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. As mentioned on last week's show, we're going to proceed today with a little help from our friends to um, go through the backlog of material that often accumulates uh, as we try and do this show week to week. We, uh, we read a lot of material, clip a lot of things out, and seem to never have time to catch up. We're going to do what we can today to rectify that. If all goes according to plan, we'll bring back some previous guests. Dr. Andrew Nangalama spoke to us last year about his efforts to raise money for an orphanage in Uganda. In the wake of uh, seeing The Last King of Scotland at the uh, Academy Award-nominated performance by Forrest Whitaker, I thought it'd be a good time to have Dr. Nangalama return and talk to us about uh, the real events he witnessed in his home country back in the 1970s. The good doctor can bear witness to some of the uh, very unfortunate events that took place in uh, his homeland. Events which turned him into a refugee walking 200 miles to the back country to uh, escape into Kenya and later into the United States. And we'll bring back a few other old friends uh, as things develop. Let us commence this program as we always like to do with On This Date in History, which in this case is February 8th. On this date in 1915, American producer D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation, premiered in Los Angeles. The three-hour epic about the Civil War was a box office smash, but is now considered one of the more offensive films ever made because of its championing the cause of the Ku Klux Klan. On February 8, 1952, Queen Elizabeth II arrived back in Great Britain from Kenya, where she had learned of the death of her father, King George VI. She was greeted at the airport by Prime Minister Winston Churchill and was proclaimed Queen the very same day. The Queen is currently portrayed in a critically acclaimed movie titled The Queen, wherein Helen Mirren's portrayal has earned her an Oscar nomination. We haven't seen it but plan to. On this date in 1964, the Iraqi National Oil Company was incorporated in Baghdad in what must be one of the great understatements of the book, Today in History, a day-by-day review of world events. Uh, It's noted that in years to come, oil wealth would help the nation play an important part in Middle East politics. And on February 8, 1969, a shower of meteorites falls on Pueblito de Allende in Chihuahua, Mexico. The meteorites came from the explosion of a single meteor weighing several tons, which created a large fireball as it fell through the atmosphere. More than two tons of fragments have been recovered in Chihuahua, Mexico, and I can report uh, that I am holding in my hand at this moment a small piece of this extraterrestrial visitor. My particular specimen is about the size of a marble with a blackened surface uh, somewhat reminiscent of a charcoal briquette. This is a somewhat rare type of meteorite, but so much of it fell onto Mexico back in 1969 that it's uh, fairly available through brokers who supply such things. Personally, I think it's rather cool to own a, uh, a piece of rock from outer space and suggest that if, if you feel that way, you might wish to go uh, obtain one yourself. Our quip of the day is an old Yiddish proverb, which states, 
If triangles had a God, he'd have three sides. Our quote of the day comes from Winston Churchill, who once observed, A fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. I think we'll call that our smart quote of the day because our dumb quote of the day comes from Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, who told the commission, which is probing the Lebanese war, that despite failures, Israel achieved significant diplomatic and military successes and thus had won the Lebanon war after all. Perhaps the Bush administration could try this, uh, declaring victory in Iraq and then coming on home. It's got some merit. But uh, if you are keeping track in the Lebanese situation, the two kidnapped soldiers for which the war was started over purportedly, uh, oh, yeah, they're, they're still in the custody of Hezbollah in Lebanon. Our statistic of the day comes from CNN.com that noted that of the 383 bills that were signed into law during the recently adjourned 109th Congress, called the Do-Nothing Congress by many, more than one quarter dealt with naming or renaming federal buildings, primarily post offices. Let us do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for cops and college students after Dr. Robert Bohannon, a molecular biologist, unveiled the world's first caffeinated donut. By micro-encapsulating caffeine particles inside the donut, Bohannon says he's created a buzz donut that need not be dunked in coffee. It might be said, on the other hand, that it was a somewhat of a bad week for diversity after the small Canadian town of Hereauville, Quebec, put Muslim immigrants who wish to live there on notice that they will not be allowed to stone women to death in public, burn them alive, or throw acid on them. The sponsor of the new rules said the town is simply clarifying that traditional practices of other cultures, quote, cannot be recreated there, unquote. We at Radio Parallax have to agree that although we encourage diversity uh, throughout our culture, stoning women to death in public probably should be reined in. And finally, it was kind of an ugly week a couple of weeks back for public relations in the Big Apple after a Guyanese immigrant, newly arrived in New York, went for a stroll, got lost, and turned up five days later suffering from frostbite and dehydration. Damun Mutu, 32, says he would have asked for directions had he not heard stories of what New Yorkers will do to people. I'm thinking of going back to Guyana, added Mutu. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. All right, you may have noticed that last weekend uh, we held a Super Bowl. In this particular Super Bowl, the Indianapolis Colts, formerly of Baltimore, defeated the Chicago Bears. Uh, the Super Bowls are generally lackluster games, and uh, what I saw of this one looked pretty much to 
be par for the course. But in the past couple decades, a rather strange phenomenon has emerged in America. People watch the game to critique the advertisements. We really come full circle when, when, when you actually will watch the game for the advertisements and you know ignore the actual sporting event. This kind of reminds us of Will Durst's comment about the home shopping network. He likes to watch it, he says, because there's no commercials. Mr. McMillan uh, reported seeing the commercial with uh, David Letterman and Oprah Winfrey, which, uh, which did sound pretty funny. I didn't see that one. Luckily, I did catch the one uh, in which uh, Mr. Britney Spears, Kevin Federline, appears. I was curious to see this because of this news item which appeared last week. The fast food industry is charging that a Super Bowl commercial featuring Kevin Federline as a burger flipper is, quote, demeaning, unquote, to people who work at McDonald's and Burger King. The ad for an insurance company will show Federline, Britney Spears' widely mocked estranged husband, cooking burgers while fantasizing that he's a rap superstar. Depicting burger flippers as losers is a negative, unfair, and inaccurate reflection, says a spokesman for the National Restaurant Association, calling the ad an insult to the 12.8 million restaurant workers in America. Personally, I got, I got quite a laugh out of seeing Federline uh, uh, imagining that he's in the back of a limo uh, cruising along with all of the, uh, the accoutrements of being a, a rap superstar, at which point the manager of the fast food joint shakes him out of his daydream by saying, Federline, fries, could say what you want about the guy. It shows he's got a sense of humor, and we think that counts for quite a lot. And from the miscellaneous file, we have this item. Pagans honored Zeus last week at an 1,800-year-old Athens temple, the first time a religious ceremony had been held there since the year 394 A.D., when the Roman authorities banned the worship of the old Greek gods. The temple of the Olympian Zeus in the heart of Athens uh, is not open to tourists, and the culture ministry, fearing damage to the ruins, refused to make an exception for worship. So the 20-odd worshipers from the Elenaeus Society, which seek to revive ancient Greek culture, limited their prayers to the steps. Last year, Elenaeus won a lawsuit forcing state recognition of the ancient religion. Does this mean we're going to see a revival of Mercury, Apollo, Athena, Zeus, Hera, etc.? Well... We kind of hope so. They, they were a pretty fun bunch of deities. This might be a good point to segue into one of our perennial favorites of the year, the Esquire Dubious Achievements of the Year Awards, which come out every February. We're not sure the writing was up to snuff on this particular issue, but there's a couple items we liked, and, and this one in particular caught our eye. Said Esquire, describing his achievements over the past five years at a dinner for supporters, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi said that he felt like, quote, the Jesus Christ of Italian politics. I sacrifice myself for everyone, he said. Which Esquire captioned, we'll get the nail gun. And since we're doing dubious achievements, let's do a few more. During her unsuccessful campaign for a Senate seat in Florida, Congresswoman Katherine Harris told the journal Florida Baptist Witness that the separation of church and state was, quote, wrong because God is the one who chooses our rulers, unquote. 
which Esquire captioned, except for W. That was me. Item per Esquire. A Missouri couple in 2006 faked the birth of sex tuplets and claimed they were critically ill to raise money from their neighbors. Esquire captioned it, which is not as easy as it sounds. And finally, we have an item which I believe we did note on this program uh, when it was revealed some months back. Republicans in Congress reauthorized a portion of a defense spending bill that sets aside $20 million for post-war victory parties in Iraq and Afghanistan. Esquire captioned it, Congratulations, Mr. Prime Minister. Gotta run. And speaking of parties, it's been reported that when Fidel Castro dies, Miami's large Cuban-American community will be invited to mark the occasion in the Orange Bowl football stadium. This is according to city officials. They said they would hope this would avoid a repeat of the boisterous street parties that broke out last summer when Castro's illness was first reported. And in other news involving Latin American dictators, Hugo Chavez has apparently been promoted to the ranks of dictators by the Venezuelan legislature. Yes, last week, a Venezuelan Congress wholly loyal to President Hugo Chavez met in the downtown plaza and gave him the authority to enact sweeping measures by presidential decree. Chavez was granted almost limitless authority to rule by decree for 18 months. We're not sure whether ruling by decree may have uh, worked for, uh, you know, uh, Darius, king of ancient Persia, but we're, we're positive it's a bad idea in a modern nation. We have to admit, we thought it was a pretty funny one-liner when Chavez addressed the UN a day after George Bush and said he could still smell the sulfur. But we are considerably less amused by his statement that if the U.S. doesn't like the way Venezuela is being governed, it can go to hell. In our experience, dictators generally go to hell and take their countries with them. And in the latest installment in the story of uh, water and California politics, and, and really the story of water is the story of California politics, uh, an 18,000 home development east of Sacramento was put on hold by a 6-1 to one ruling of the California Supreme Court, which found that Sacramento County aired back in 2002 when it approved Sunrise Douglas, one of the region's largest development projects, which fans out from the intersection of Sunrise Boulevard and Douglas Road. Said the court, the county environmental analysis failed to nail down long-term water sources for the thousands of new homes, which have thus far relied on well water. We're going to follow this story as we do so many other water-related stories. The one nice thing you can say about it is at least they weren't building in a floodplain. Thanks to ill-advised development of the North Natomas area here in Sacramento, we are now... Uh, we are now a disaster waiting to happen. In fact, officials in the field of disaster preparedness think that Sacramento is the next New Orleans. That's assuming it ever starts raining again. We've had something like five straight weeks wherein we got 0.7 inches of rain in Sacramento. It's the driest January in 158 years of record keeping. But the rains will surely return. And, uh, and when they do... We are again, and we have been looked at as potentially the next New Orleans. And uh, on the subject of flooding, we encountered a commentary done by KDVS's own Lyra Halprin for Capital Public Radio. 
wherein she recounted her firsthand experience up in Yuba City in some epic floods back in 1955. Lyra is a senior public information representative here at UC Davis, and we spoke to her last year about a commentary she did for National Public Radio. The subject was her daughter's insulin pump. This aired nationally, and she's gone on to produce numerous other commentaries which have aired here on Capital Public Radio. Lyra is also a KDVS volunteer, and we're glad to have her back on the program. Hi, Doug. We wanted to talk to you because I was listening to one of your commentaries you did for Cap Radio about uh, a couple weeks back, and it's a topic that's near and dear to us, the issue of flooding here in California. We've talked about how if the levee breaks in Natomas, uh, Hooters is going to be under like a couple, you know, uh, six meters of water. And you have some personal experience with flooding, which you talked about in the commentary. So tell us what happened back in the 50s. I was, I'm a survivor of the 1955 Christmas Eve flood in Marysville, Yuba City area. Uh, the levee broke on our farm, and it had been raining for the biblical 40 days, nights <laughs> period. It really was. It was, it was like in that range. And, um, I had I was there with my dad and my grandparents and the levee broke on our place. We had some uh warning and I remember that my family spent 4 hours moving the furniture to the second floor. Then we went off and spent the night in a church in Sutter and we came back and there was no house. <laughs> so much for having the table up on the second floor. Right. And it was it was gone. It was gone, and I was mad because my dad hadn't gone back to get my bracelet. Well, uh, this is I know that in Fremont, where I grew up, fifty five was a bad year there too. They had flooding of Alameda Creek, so I guess it was happening all over Northern California. But unfortunately, uh, that was back when it was a lot of agricultural land. And in the past forty years, we have fifty years now. We've developed like crazy, and. Uh, what I find curious is you went back to survey the scene of the crime back up there in Yuba City and noticed that, uh, well, development has come to where it was formerly a floodplain. Right. There's quite a few houses. I think there's about 900 houses on our uh, what was formerly our farm, 300 acres. <laughs> where, the, where the ranch house was washed away. Right. Washed away. And, uh, and you went there and sort of asked around, like, do you guys know you're in a floodplain? I did. And the street names are pretty... Uh, odd too, like Rapid Waterway. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, Noah but, Drive, probably. <laughs> maybe something like that. But most of the people haven't lived there very long and don't really know the area and have no memory or don't know anyone who remembers the floods. And there were floods since then in like 97. I've talked to people who said up there and have a similar experience to you up near Olivehurst, I guess, big development in there. They don't even tell people they need flood insurance. There's some kind of scam going on because if the levee breaks up there, those homes and probably where you're talking about too would be under 20 feet of water, literally. It possibly, I don't know for sure, but it was in 1955. Well, yes, <laughs> yes. And if it happened before, it can happen again. Yes, the levee, the actual uh, riverbed is different. I mean, it was that powerful that it changed the flow of the river. I mean, everything changed up there, but um, that general area, I would be reluctant to raise my kids that close to a levee. Well, what do you think when you read, like, in the B, these stories about here, like, flood insurance issues up in the Tomas and in, Cal and in, in the Sacramento area, uh, and, and, and not letting anybody know that they're in a floodplain? 
I think it's a real problem. I don't even know if the realtors know. I, 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 there's a part of me that thinks, well, I don't think people are being misled on purpose. I don't think the people who do the developments or who are selling them, I can't believe they really get it because otherwise, how could they well, with a straight face? What, one of our models in this program is never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. However, having known a few realtors and knowing if you have friends or realtors, they know. They know. I, I think probably, my guess is, too, that age might have something to do with it. I think that younger realtors or younger anybody just wouldn't know. Well, Lyra, I guess I'm just a little more cynical than you, perhaps. Because <laughs> I, I think they know, and I think it's a huge scandal, and I think we need to talk about it again. But in the meantime, where can folks go to hear your, your commentary you did for Cap Radio? If you go on the web to capradio.org and go to the news section and type in my name, Lyra Halperin, L-Y-R-A Halperin, or just my first name even, would it would come up the list of stories I've done there, and the flood story is one of them. All right, that's only one of many. We, we recommend, dear listener, that you do exactly that. Thanks, Doug. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. a lot of science topics we're going to tackle here in segment two today. One of the great things about science is it contains usually a lot of good news. And good news can come from some unlikely sources. In this case, intestinal worms. Reporting on a study in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, New Scientist magazine noted last week that intestinal worms may not be totally bad news. A study of 1,600 children in Vietnam suggests that those infected with hookworm are only 60% as likely as uninfected children to be allergic to dust mites. We're seeing a worldwide increase in allergy, and a lot of people think this is uh, because certain uh, intestinal ailments are becoming less common. Uh, this, uh, this study provides support for that idea that allergic diseases have become more common as children are exposed to fewer infections. But it also suggests that theories for how this happens uh, may need some adjusting. And in a study report in the Annals of Neurology, uh, it was noted that parasitic worms could have an unexpected benefit. They could improve the prospects of people with autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis. Parasites were already known to affect the progression of such diseases in animals. 
So researchers at the Raul Carrey Institute for Neurologic Research in Buenos Aires, Argentina, wanted to know if it did the same in people. Researchers determined that those infected with parasites had fewer relapses and less deterioration in their condition than the parasite-free participants. So it appears that parasitic worms may enable us to make some breakthroughs in how the immune system uh, goes wrong and lead to some treatments in the future. It's exciting stuff. And uh, speaking of surprising developments in the, in the area of the immune system, researchers at the University of New Mexico for, performed DNA tests on 48 heterosexual couples to determine the nature of their immune system genes. Previous studies had found that women are attracted to men whose immune systems are of a different type than their own. And for reasons that no one's been able to quite explain yet, uh, your immune system diversity apparently affects how you smell, or at least how others perceive how you smell. Said this new study, a woman can tell whether a man is a genetically suitable mate simply by smelling him. <laughs> no, no, I'm not making this up. If a woman catches the scent of a good genetic match, said the researchers, she may feel a powerful urge to stray from her steady man. This research found to an amazing degree that a couple's genetic similarity predicted how likely it was that the woman had cheated on the man. If, for example, a married couple had 60% of their immune system DNA in common, the wife had a 60% likelihood of having slept with someone else. If they had almost no immune system similarity, the wife was highly faithful. These results strongly suggest that evolution has hardwired women to detect the best biological father to produce hardy offspring, which is one outcome of this genetic diversity. Psychologist Christine Garver Apgar told New Scientist magazine, we're fairly certain that all this revolves around scent. She said the next step will be to identify the specific chemical cocktail that signals a man's genetic makeup. And don't you guess that perfume manufacturers are going to find some of this stuff pretty interesting. All right, people are buying green tea everywhere. It's uh, reputed to be great for your heart, uh, but new studies say that's until you add milk. Both black and green tea varieties are well known to improve heart health over time. It's felt because component flavonoids called catechins relax the blood vessels. But when milk is added to a cup of tea, milk proteins interact with the catechins, blocking their heart-healthy properties. So I guess the moral of the story is, add lemon, not milk. And in a study that will surprise no one that ever followed the antics of the Tobacco Institute in reporting uh, studies on smoking and secondhand smoke, etc., USA Today reported nutrition studies on food and beverages last month, uh, reporting that they were heavily influenced by the makers of those products. Researchers at Children's Hospital in Boston com compiled a set of 206 studies on the health effects of beverages such as juice, milk, and soda, then compared the industry-funded studies to those funded independently. They found that while independent research yielded equal numbers of favorable and unfavorable assessments of the beverages, industry-funded research was overwhelmingly favorable. Study author David Ludwig noted that the, the fact that funding skews results is a huge big deal, saying, quote, conflict of interest in nutrition could affect everybody, unquote. 
But Ludwig suggested that we not blame this phenomenon on bad science. He said you should blame it instead on selective publishing. The industry is clearly choosing to sponsor studies that they think will reflect well on their products, and the results of unfavorable studies never see the light of day. And here's an item from New Scientist. It wasn't quite as bad as putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop. Still, the law takes a dim view when the head of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration fails to own up to profiting from soft drinks and food while determining policy on obesity. Lester Crawford uh, paid the price for this notable lapse last month. Crawford headed the FDA from 2002 to 2005 and pled guilty last year to conflict of interest charges. The most alarming of these was his failure to declare ownership of shares in the soft drink and food companies Cisco and PepsiCo while chairing an FDA working group on obesity in 2004. Said attorneys advising the court on sentencing, it does not take a lawyer to determine that the country's obesity czar should not own stock in corporations that produce fast food, junk food, and soft drinks. And speaking of lousy products, a lot of people have been coming into the clinic I work in of late noting that uh, they can't understand it. They've been taking um, Airborne and they still got sick. Perhaps you've heard their ads. Uh, It's reported that this was developed by a teacher who was tired of getting sick. This implies, of course, that this enterprising teacher sat down and put together some compounds that will keep you from getting ill from Airborne disease. They never actually say that, but That's what they imply. My advice, dear listener, is to save your money. If you pick up a box of Airborne, which I did in a pharmacy a few days back, you will note that it says right on the package, this product is not intended to cure, diagnose, treat, or prevent any disease. And the following item may take me a couple minutes to to read and explain, but I think it's going to be worth it. Wrote Andy Coughlin in the January 20th issue of New Scientist, It sounds almost too good to be true. A cheap and simple drug that kills almost all cancers by switching off their immortality. The drug, dichloroacetate, DCA, has already been used for years to treat rare metabolic disorders and so is known to be relatively safe. But it also has no patent, meaning it could be manufactured for a fraction of the cost of newly developed drugs. And it turns out this being an old drug is quite a hitch. Since it can't be patented, no pharmaceutical company is likely to fund costly clinical trials without some exclusive rights to make the drug. This is not a new problem. Many drugs are left on the shelf because companies cannot make lots of money from them. It has happened with drugs for diseases that affect mainly poor people in developing countries such as TB, though there are now an increasing number of partnerships between governments, charities, and commercial companies to deal with these cases. Many drugs are left on the shelf because companies cannot make lots of money from them. It's a safe bet that drug companies will be falling over themselves to find patentable compounds with a similar action to DCA. Any of these reaching the market will be hugely expensive. Noted the magazine, it would be a scandal if a cheap alternative with such astonishing potential would not be given a chance simply because it won't turn a big enough profit. Be that as it may, DCA is really an exciting drug because it attacks a unique feature of cancer cells. The fact that they make their energy through the main body of the cell, if you think of an egg, basically the, uh, the white of the egg, rather than in distinct organelles called mitochondria. It so happens that cancer cells, 
switch the uh, how the cell generates energy to a process called glycolysis. This is uh, the same means by which yeast turn grape sugars into wine. The human body uses uh, basically the same process except for the last couple steps where the alcohol comes out. But it doesn't generate that much energy, so we rely upon these cells' powerhouses, the mitochondria, to generate most of our energy. Enter DCA. The drug boosts the ability of mitochondria to generate energy, and when given to cancer cells, it reawakened the mitochondria in those cells. Uh, those cancer cells then withered and died. It's a, it's a bit of pretty basic biology that's uh, pretty exciting with an old compound. The question is, how rapidly is this going to come to market if drug companies can't, uh, you know, can't profit from a cheap, non-patentable compound? I must say, I always get pretty irked when I hear quacks like uh, health guru Gary Null claiming that uh, you know he can cure cancer with uh, celery juice, and that medical science deliberately doesn't cure cancer to profit from it. But uh, this case involving dichloroacetate uh, does show that among all of that nonsense spouted by uh, quacks like Null, there, there's, there's a grain of truth. I feel fairly certain that if this drug can live up to its potential, uh, it's going to get used, drug company profit or not. We mentioned a couple weeks back on the program how uh, scientists have now done a survey of the bacteria in our guts and discovered that the kind of bacteria that predominates may make us prone to obesity? Well, they've now, uh, they've now done a similar survey of what grows on the outside of us and determined that there's something like 200 species of bacteria which, uh, which, which are growing on, on every one of us. It turned out that 8% of the bacteria growing on us had previously never been formally described by scientists. These studies of what's growing on the inside of us and what's growing on the outside of us is, is sure to, uh, to lead to some breakthroughs, but uh, exactly what those are going to be, well, no, no one can say just yet. And uh, here's a study I really hope that employers don't take <laughs> too much notice of. The University of Toronto asked some students to listen to music. Music was happy, sad, or neutral, and then asked them to complete some tasks that required them to focus. It turned out the students who rated themselves as feeling happy were 40% more likely to be distracted. Said lead researcher Adam Anderson, this phenomenon translates easily to offices. When employees are in a good mood, they'll want to talk with colleagues, email with friends, and surf the internet. When they're grumpy, they're more likely to close themselves off and plow through mundane tasks. This leads to the disquieting conclusion that cranky and unhappy people tend to be more productive workers. This is balanced off somewhat by previous research, which suggested that people in good moods are more effective at creative thinking. And in giant collision news, we have two items. Astronomers using the Deimos spectrograph of the Keck telescope in Hawaii determined that the Andromeda galaxy uh, attained its present shape partially by virtue of an ancient galactic collision. Apparently the Andromeda galaxy had a bit of a smash up with a dwarf galaxy. Astronomers are hopeful that if they can calculate the Andromeda galaxy's total mass, once arriving at that value, they can help shed some light on the elusive dark matter that pervades the universe. 
Meanwhile, here on, uh, on planet Earth, geologists studying the Afar Desert in northern Ethiopia have observed that it is undergoing a rifting process at the rather remarkably slow speed of less than one inch per year. But it's been doing so for the past 30 million years, and the rifting has formed a 186-mile depression, as well as the Red Sea. Turns out that most of the places on Earth where you see this sort of splitting of crusts uh, takes place deep underwater. Turns out Ethiopia is the only place on the planet where one can see a continent splitting apart on dry land. Scientists have recently descended on Ethiopia because occasionally this buildup in pressure can lead to bursts of cataclysmic activity. In September of 2005, for example, a chain of earthquakes caused hundreds of deep fractures. In some spots, the ground shifted 26 feet and magma, enough to fill a football stadium more than 2,000 times over, was injected into a crack between these two plates of the Earth's crust. At some point in the future, when this uh, extends far enough, the Red Sea is going to pour its water into the area and have a new arm. But you may want to hold off on speculating on beachfront property because it's probably not going to take place for about another million years. Here's three basic biology items I stumbled on I thought were interesting. The food section of the Sacramento Bee noted a few days back that uh, you can get a lot of Haas avocados from Mexico about now because the peak of the season in Mexico is October to February, which is nicely complementary to our California crop, which peaks from January to September. This article simply noted that down in Michoacan, Mexico, where most of the avocados come from, the huge avocado trees were primarily used as shade for coffee bean plants. But then in the 1920s, around La Habra in Southern California, the Haas avocado was discovered. This particular variety became enormously popular. It became so popular that growers in Mexico began grafting the California Haas onto their orchards thus beginning their huge industry. I've always found it pretty amazing that one particular variety of, of a vegetable crop, a fruit, a vegetable comes along, and it turns out to be so good, by chance, that human beings immediately take to it and propagate it all over the world. And here's a surprise. Scientists at Brown University studied bats flying in a wind tunnel. Previous studies along this line had compared the oxygen consumption among birds, insects, and bats of similar sizes. For example, a hummingbird, a small bat, and a large moth, and found that bats use less energy to fly. But until now, no one had an explanation for this. While their motions may seem erratic and graceless, the wind tunnel tests suggested that the secret to efficient bat flight lies in the fact that they have a flexible skin membrane and many jointed wings. A bat's wing contains more than two dozen joints that are overlain by a thin elastic membrane that can stretch to catch air and generate lift in many different ways. Said Sharon Schwartz, an associate professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, this gives bats an extraordinary amount of control over the three-dimensional shape their wings take during flight. And uh, this correspondent learned a bit of biology that I apparently did not pick up when I was a student here at uh, UCD. The Economist magazine, reporting on um, some fish genetics, revealed that bony fish, better known to scientists as teleosts, 
were, during the era of the dinosaurs, pretty much restricted to fresh water. Evidently, uh, cartilaginous fishes, such as sharks and rays, dominated the oceans, but about 55 million years ago, a meteoric diversification took place when the oceans were suddenly filled up with bony fishes. I don't know if there's any connection, but I read elsewhere that it was about this time, about 55 million years ago, that the Earth underwent a spike in CO2 levels, which wreaked havoc on uh, the planet's ecosystems. Global warming data seems to suggest that we're, uh, we may be in the middle of uh, that process repeating itself now. We will have to do some further research to see if there may be some connection. And in our final science item, we report that it could be that the mystery of ball lightning may have been solved. Throughout history, thousands of people have reported seeing ball lightning, which is described as a luminous sphere, which sometimes appears during thunderstorms. It's typically about the size of a grapefruit and lasts for several seconds or even minutes, sometimes hovering or even bouncing along the ground. No one's ever been able to reproduce a phenomenon that might explain what ball lightning might be, but down in uh, Brazil, a team led by Antonio Pavao and Gerson Pavaya took wafers of silicon, placed them between electrodes, and zapped them with some strong currents. Over a couple seconds, they moved the electrodes apart, created a big electrical arc, and vaporized the silicon. As a result, the arc spat out glowing fragments of silicon, but... Also, sometimes luminous orbs the size of ping-pong balls that persisted for up to eight seconds. These balls were able to melt plastic, and one even burned a hole in Paiva's jeans. So could ball lightning be the result of uh, conventional lightning striking soil and turning silica in that soil into some silicon vapor? Well, research will have to continue. You check my nerves and you rattle my brain Too much love drives a man insane You broke my wheel, but what a thrill Couldn't it great with ball the fire I left in love, but I thought it was funny But you came along and you moved me, honey I changed my mind, this love is fine Couldn't it great and greeting ball the fire All right, I guess we were, we're partially caught up in some of our science stories and we need to take a break, so let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. In our uh, obituary section, which is reserved for the top of our third segment generally, we are sad to note the passing of Molly Ivins, described in the Sacramento Bee as the gleefully liberal pundit. 
Quoting from Elaine Wu's L.A. Times obituary, Molly Ivins, the irrepressibly irreverent political humorist and syndicated columnist who skewered legislators, governors, and presidents, especially those from her beloved Texas, died Wednesday at her home in Austin after a long battle with cancer. Miss Ivins established herself as a font of liberal outrage and hilarity during the 1970s when she was an editor and writer on the Texas Observer. She went on to write for a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, the Dallas Times-Herald, and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. In recent years, she wrote for Creators Syndicate, which distributed her twice-weekly column to 400 papers across the United States. Wrote Bob Ray Sanders about his, uh, his colleague and fellow Texas liberal, Molly wanted local and national leaders to be held accountable for their actions or inactions, and if no one else was willing to do it, dadgummit, she was. We're pleased to say that we, uh, we had Molly Ivins on this program, and her interview is available on our website, radioparallax.com. This was show number 107, dated July 8, 2004. It started like this. Molly Ivins, welcome to Radio Parallax. Oh, thank you. What a great name. <laughs> You're the first person that's uh, that's got it. <laughs> One of my favorite, favorite favorite metaphors. Oh, excellent. Your bio reveals that you speak Spanish. I once heard that Paul Harvey alleged that while George W. Bush was in Mexico, he conversed with Vicente Fox in Spanish. Uh, but you re- reveal in your book, however, that W. once said in a debate, no es el verdad, with uh, <laughs> la verdad, of course, being correct for that's not right. So do you have any doubts about the president's uh, diplomatic uh, standard Spanish? <laughs> I think one of the myths about Bush that Karl Rove really deserves a medal for. <laughs> We're very pleased that Molly Ivins was familiar with what parallax meant and found it to be one of her favorite metaphors. Please check out the rest of the interview on our website. But I would like to just read a couple of her, uh, her more notable quotes. Said Molly Ivins, In Texas, we do not hold high expectations for the governor's office. It's mostly been occupied by crooks, dorks, and the comatose. Molly Ivins. As they say around the Texas legislature, if you can't drink their whiskey, screw their women, take their money, and vote against them anyway, you don't belong in office. Molly Ivins. I know vegetarians don't like to hear this, but God made an awful lot of land that's good for nothing but grazing. And from her very last column, dated January 11, 2007, we are the people who run this country. We are the deciders. And every single day, every single one of us needs to take a step outside and take some action to help stop this war. Raise hell. Think of something to make the ridiculous look ridiculous. Make our troops know that we're for them and trying to get them out of there. Molly Ivins, we salute you. Eyes are light as diamonds, they sparkle like the dew. You may talk about your dearest maids and sing of Rosalie, but the yellow rose of Texas beats the bells of Tennessee. As promised, the top of the program, we are going to. Uh, Continue 
talking to uh, some of our friends here. And our friend in this segment is Dr. Andrew Nangalama. Dr. Nangalama is a local physician, having been in the Davis-slash-Sacramento area since the early 1980s. He spoke to us uh, last year about uh, a charity operation going on for orphans in Uganda. As we say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Nangalama. Thank you. And how's the progress going on the the orphanage? Uh, The progress is uh, going quite well. We're going to be having a similar conference this year. Um, in um, El Dorado and uh, Rancho Cordova area um, during Memorial Weekend, uh, May this year. Okay. Well, then they raised raised quite a bit of money last year, I guess. Yeah, we raised quite a bit of money, but we still have uh, quite a bit of work to do with uh, orphanages and uh, medical provisions for you know the orphans in Uganda. Well, we'll have to talk about that again uh, when May when May rolls around. But I, I wanted you to come on today's program. Because I had a chance uh, two weeks back to see the very interesting movie out there, Last King of Scotland, uh, with um, Forrest Whitaker's Oscar nominee portraying Idi Amin, the former dictator of Uganda. As a former Ugandan, you have quite an interesting story, I think, to tell us about the country, starting with the fact that you actually met Idi Amin. Yes, I met Idi Amin. Specifically, Idi Amin uh, visited my home when my father was involved in the government in Uganda. And that was 1971. Uh, when he first came in power, he had to go around the country to get support from different tribes. My father, having been a leader of the tribe where I came from, uh, he came and, uh, you know, he was a a big guest of the tribe, and uh, Zida Amin moved with a lot of military. and uh, So he came in with his whole entourage. He came with a whole of entourage, and in fact, he landed with his helicopter in my father's farm. And uh, at that time, the locals, people rushed to the farm, and everything on the farm was stampede, <laughs> and there was no replacement. <laughs> <laughs> your, your father was talking to him. Did you get a chance to listen in, or were you... I, I was pretty young. I didn't get a chance to listen in uh, because uh, he was surrounded by many people in the government. And even though he visited the home, it was an official home, so we were left out. But I had a chance to shake hands with him. What, what, what was your impression as a young man of meeting the president of the country? He was a very big figure. He was a very big man, very energetic, and uh, he, he stood up in the the crowd among most people in the, could easily tell who Idamin was, the way he walked, the way he presented himself. He presented himself with a man of, of power. If my memory serves me correct, he was a big man. He was actually the boxing champion of the country, the heavyweight boxing champion. He, he was one time a heavyweight champion during colonial days in the, uh, in the 50s. Uh, but then he was military uh, officer under United Kingdom, King's Army. I guess he was, the movie portrays him liking the Scots because he was part of the Scottish Highlanders or something. It was something they were. I think uh, he had friendship and a contact early on with the Scotch, uh, most likely through his military training. And uh, when he had power, he just continued his friendship. And uh, I think they were probably his close advisors. Well, you've had a chance to see uh, the movie, and what did you think of it? The movie, for the uh, most part, uh, the actors and the actresses, uh, they did a great job. 
many parts of the movie are quite accurate for the stories that happened. When you look at the movie comprehensively, uh, may make things look simple, but a lot of complicated and unfortunate things happened. But I think those are some of the you know stories that you know stand up. Certainly, it portrays Ida Amin as a man who had full was full of ego, uh, a man who was determined to to be a dominant in society, a tyranny, and think he had probably the feeling that probably he was going to be uh, a person extending power all over the Africa in the world. I know that when he went to the Organization of African Unity meeting wearing six guns on his hip, he got a standing ovation, and he was, for at least a while, wildly popular in Africa. I think Ida Amin was popular, probably. Uh, part of his uh, support came from the, the poor of the people who had mainly been in the military. Uganda was a country in eastern Central Africa which had had a good basic education uh, compared to the neighboring countries, they had many people who were well-educated. Ida Amin decided that he was going to turn things the other way around and uh, get all the uneducated people who were in the military at the time to take over the power. And when he promoted those people, therefore he decided to eliminate anybody who had a, a good education or who could at least question what they were doing. Well, I think maybe a lot of people aren't so familiar with uh, Amin's rule. It's been a while since the 1970s, but uh, I think that as it unfolded, the world was horrified that this country of 11 million people was having something like at least 100,000, some say maybe 300,000 people killed in all of the, the disorder and strife and, and just some just outright barbarities that took place. His way of killing people was uh, right from the beginning. He wanted to show the people that he was in power and uh, he wanted to show people that he was coming to stay and uh, whoever would question whatever, there was no discussions was going to be executed. I, for myself, I lost some of my family, close family, you know, some who were executed, homes that were blown up. It affected my uh, being in Uganda. I was a student in a veterinary school and the university. I was in the students' government, and uh, suddenly we were not happy. We formed an opposition, and uh, because of the opposition, that we received, you know, uh, punishment from Idi Amin, and I had to flee the country. Talking about this before we we sat down before the mic, you told me that. Um the movie ends with what was sort of the unraveling of Amin, the raid at Entebbe, where Israeli commandos came in and, and basically took back people that the Palestinians had hijacked. And uh, I gather that this sort of inspired some people in the country that, you know, that maybe you can stand up to Amin and win. Ida Amin, the way, you know, he wanted to show to the people or sometimes scared people like at the university, he would fly his MiGs over the university and bring tanks to roll in the university campuses. So when he heard that uh, the university students were cheering because of the Entebbe air raid, the first thing he did was to fly all his MiGs over the university, making all the noise, 
And then he had to bring all the tanks and the trucks take over the university. Wow. So uh, when he when he sent jets flying, are we, you're talking about jets just flying at low altitude? There were MiGs flying about, probably about 30 feet above <laughs> the buildings. So like know. 500 miles an hour buzzing, yes, buzzing the campus. Uh, and of course the tanks surrounding all the streets. This was being done day and the night. And then the night when it was dark, that's when they turned off all the lights on the campus and then they attacked the university. I know that at this point you had to flee the country into Kenya, and from which you found your way to the United States, but why don't we actually break this up? I'd like to actually tell you that on next week's show because yes. we're going to talk to David Walachinsky about some of the current worst dictators in the world. So we'll uh, stop right now, but have you come back in a week and then continue the story. Does that, does that sound okay? That sounds great. All right. We've been speaking with Dr. Andrew Nangalama. He is a local physician. Uh, we should note that he obtained both his PhD at UCD in the, the field of endocrinology slash biochemistry, and he also obtained his MD degree here at UC Davis. But in 1976, he was fleeing his country literally on foot, traveling 300 miles into Kenya. He will return the next week to tell us uh, how that unfolded. So. This, this means you have to tune in again next week, dear listener. All right, we are out of time, but as mentioned in passing, we hope to have on next week's program David Wallachinsky, the best-selling author of The People's Almanac. We are huge fans of the People's Almanac series produced uh, by Mr. Walachinsky and Irving Wallace. I recommend that everyone have on their uh, on their home bookshelf Walachinsky's The People's Almanac Presents the 20th Century. We hope to talk to him on next week's program about his latest book, Tyrants, the World's 20 Worst Living Dictators. We are looking very forward to that on next week's program. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We will see you next week at the same time. Stay tuned here on KDVS for Ruby, whose program, Faint of Heart, will initiate the resumption of our fine musical programming here on the station. 